We are in week three of a series called First Things First, and Nixon and I have just come back from a little bit of leave, and before we went on leave, we, we decided uh, the next couple of weeks what that would look like from a preaching perspective, and so we decided the content, what we wanted to preach on, and then um, I left it to, we left it to much cleverer and more creative and, and a little bit better looking people than us to come up with the title of the series, and uh, so we got back from leave knowing what was going to be preached, not knowing what it was called, and I, I, I love the, the, the name that they landed on, first things first, the church and the word that makes us, the church and the word that forms us. Sorry, Jades, the church and the word that forms us. See, Jesus saves us 100% on his own. He's quite clever that way. He doesn't need us to help him. He's quite, he's, he's quite good at doing that. He saves us on his own. But then after he's rescued me, he says, okay, John, I don't only want to save you for eternity once you die. I also want to save your today. He says, I also want to, I want to redeem your eternity so that um, what it means to be a Christian is my eternity is redeemed so that I get to spend forever, eternity, with God, not suffering apart from God, but also that my today gets redeemed. Also that my marriage, my finances, and my kids, and my relationships, and my job, and my work, and my friends, every position of power and influence that I have, all of that, my thought life, all of that gets redeemed today, and so I get, to, I get to work out what it looks like to live as a person fully alive. I get to work out what it looks like to live as a human, healed, restored, whole, and flourishing. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And Jesus says, I'll save you all by yourself, and then I'll, in order for you to work out what it looks like to flourish as a human, I'm going to have to make you new because what you were was broken. So I'm going to, make, I'm going to have to make you into something new. And one of the ways I do that is through my church and my word. The church and the word is what God uses to make us into who he has created us to be. And Rich started off looking at the church, both the global church and the local church. And Ephesians chapter 3 says this in verse 10, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church. Excuse me. This word manifold, it means many-faceted. It means that uh, God's wisdom has got different parts and characteristics. But when you look at the original word, it, it actually also means multicolored. So the, the, the picture that it uh, invokes is, is one of a, a gem. When you shine lights on a gem from different angles, you get different colors. Because the gem has got different facets, as the light hits it at a different color, so you, 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 are, you perceive different colors. And I, I love that, that Scripture teaches us that the wisdom of God is not displayed through one color. The wisdom of God is displayed through multicolors. It requires all of the colors to put the wisdom of God on display. And this word manifold, in KZN, we know it quite well because we are the drag racing capital of South Africa. We know what a manifold does. We know what it is, right? It goes like this. The Queensborough boys know it well as well. It goes engine with all its cylinders and horsepowers and horsepower. Then it goes manifold and then it goes free flow exhaust. We know that. We, that's what the, that, the, the, the manifold's job is to take all that the engine gives. It's to breathe a little bit of air into it and then channel all of that through one thing, the exhaust. That's what the manifold does. And the wisdom of God is exactly the same way. The wisdom of God is to take this multifaceted, multidimensional, multicolored, uh, the wisdom of God to breathe a little bit of air in it through the Holy Spirit and then God funnels it and channels it through one thing, the church. 
So the, Romans chapter 1 says that the glory and the splendor of God is on display through all of creation. Everything that he has made is a display of God's glory and his splendor. But he only chooses to put his wisdom on display through one thing, the church. He doesn't put his wisdom on display through all of creation, only through the church. This, it's the church that says to the spiritual world that the God of heavens is an all-wise God. See, the, everything in the spiritual world already knows that God is a powerful, creative, and glorious being by observing what he has created. But a being that is powerful and creative and glorious but not wise is actually a dangerous being. It's God's wisdom that confirms the correct use of his power. Without wisdom, power is dangerous and can be wrongly used, right? That's why we don't give chainsaws to children. Because without wisdom, <laughs> power can be used for bad, all right? It, it, it's not, it's not uh, being big and strong that qualifies you to be, to, to be worshipped. It's not, it's, not, it's not because God is, is, is powerful and creative and glorious that he is to be worshipped. It's because he is powerful, glorious, and creative, but also wise. See, a being that is just powerful, creative, and glorious should be feared. But a being that is powerful, creative and, creative, and glorious, and also wise, should be feared, but also loved and worshipped. And so when the church does not operate as she should, when the wisdom of God is not on display through the church, what happens is the world fears God, but they don't love him. God is to be feared, but also to be loved. The correct use of God's power is confirmed through his wisdom, and he chooses to put his wisdom on display through the church. So Jesus saves me, and then he, he partly uses the church to form me, and he also partly uses me as part of the church to display his wisdom. But the church isn't only global. The church isn't always, the, the church isn't only the people out there. It's somebody, the, the church is something. You know when people say the church did this, what they mean is something did this. It's, it's, you can't, it's not tangible. That's, that's the global church. But the church is not only that. The church is also local. The church is you and me. The, the church is bums on seats. The church is people who live their lives together every single day. It's global, but it's also local. Rich spoke last week about a minimum requirement of being in the local church. And I love this. There's seven minimum requirements. It says, a local church is a group of baptized believers who meet regularly to worship God through Jesus, to be exhorted or taught from the word of God, and to celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion under the guidance of duly appointed Leaders. Now, I'm not sure if, if you weren't child last week, I encourage you to go and, go and have a listen. But what Rich is saying is, if you want to consider yourself a part of the local church, it's not as if you can say, uh, two out of seven are tick. And, and the, the others are, okay, no, no, this is, not, this is not what the church is. This is the minimum, that's the entry level for a church. The entry level. So if you read uh, some of those things, or perhaps you listened last week and, and kind of hit you a little bit, and you thought, ish. I had five of those, and the other two I'm actually not so great at. Like the, the purpose of this is not to, to have a stick to hit you with. The purpose of this is to give you something to aspire to. I want, I want to be a part of the church because I recognize the beauty, and I recognize uh, what, what the local church does for me, what, 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 what are the benefit I get of being formed in the likeness of my God by being uh, fully a part of a local church. Therefore, I want to be a minimum part of it. I don't just want to be a drifter. Drifting in and out, right? A broken clock is right twice a day. 
I don't want to be that. I want to be somebody who's, who's, who's in. See, you, you, you can't love the global church fully without being a part of the local church. And I would argue that you can't love Jesus fully without loving his bride, the church. I don't think it's possible to love Jesus without loving the things that he loves. I don't think it's possible to follow Jesus as your Lord and as the one that you serve without following him into the church. Jesus will never, never, ever lead you away from his church. He might lead you away from a particular church under a very narrow set of circumstances. He, he can and does, a very narrow set of circumstances. But he will never lead you away from the church. He will always lead you towards his church. And friends, if you don't love the things that Jesus loves and you don't follow Jesus where he leads, I think it, we need to ask the question, what is it that makes you a Christian? If I don't love the things Jesus loves and I don't follow where he leads, what is it that makes me a Christian? Surely that's the basis. That's not the top. Surely that's the bottom. That's the entry point. Entry, what I'm talking now is basic entry-level Christianity. Again, this is not a stick to hit people with. This is something to aspire to. If you're sitting, if you're sitting there thinking, it's not, this is not a stick to hit you with. This is something for you to aspire to and, and because genuinely, friends, as a pastor, there is more for you. I want more for you. I want God's best for you, and I know that it's this. So, that's just my introduction. That's not, that's not what I'm speaking on this morning. That's just my introduction. That's not, none, of that, none of that counts for the time that I'm preaching this morning. That's a, that's a freebie. Just a freebie, all right? <laughs> See, I love, I, I, love, I love speaking about the church because she, she's glorious. She's beautiful. But today we're going to look at, I want to speak about the Word of God, the church and the Word that forms us. And I, I want to start off by saying up front that as there is a minimum requirement, if you want to be a part of the local church, there's also a minimum belief that as, as a Christian, I have to have regarding the Bible. There's a minimum starting point. And that minimum starting point as a Christian for the Bible is two things. I have to believe that the Bible is authoritative, and I have to believe that it is infallible. For, it to be, for the Bible to be authoritative, it means that the Bible has authority over my life. I don't sit in judgment over the Bible. I sit under the authority of the Bible. For the Bible to be infallible, it means that not only is the Bible not wrong, it's incapable of being wrong. It's not able to be wrong. And again, this is the, that's the, the minimum base level starting point requirement. Right? If, if Christianity is Everest, this is the parking lot. That's the basic requirements for me to arrive. And I'm, I'm also fully aware that this can be difficult for people. You've had the Bible misused to do harm to them by somebody. This isn't what I'm speaking on today. I'm just stating up front that this is a minimum requirement. As there's a minimum requirement to be a part of the local church, there's also a minimum requirement when it comes to the Bible. And I know that this can be hard and this can be tricky. I'm fully aware of that. What we're wanting to do next week is we're going to get a little bit practical. And so we're going to look at how we should start reading our Bibles. If you've never read your Bible, how you can get better at reading your Bible. But we also want to address some of the controversies, perhaps some of the things that you struggle with, some of the things that you find difficult or confusing or, or, or hard to understand. Um, we want to start addressing those things. And so we've got a couple of things that we would address. Um, but if you've got something that you have struggled with, in the Bible, perhaps there's, there's a point where you've got to and you thought, I don't know what to do with this, that thing, that, that, that little stumbling stone. Text it to us. 
get hold of us on our WhatsApp, nine, email, WhatsApp number, email us, speak to somebody at the hospitality desk, speak to your life group leader, send that to us, send us your questions, and we will do our best to address as much of it as we can next week. We want to get really practical, but if there is a stumbling stone for you, if when I say the Bible is authoritative and infallible, there is a stumbling stone, there's a something that you've stumbled over, text that stumbling stone to us. We would love to. Uh, we, we might not answer it all in a way. I'm probably not going to answer it all in a very clever sentence, but we can start a journey of understanding it together. So get hold of us. Please text that to us. Hebrews chapter 4 says this in verse 12. The word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of my heart. So the word the word that it's translated here as the word of God is actually, it means communication. So what the scripture is saying is the communication of God is alive and it's active. When God communicates, it's alive and it's active. So it's important for us to love the word of God, which is what the Bible is often referred to as, but we also have to love the words of God, the communication of God. We have to love the word, the Bible, but we have to love the words the communication of God. It, it, it's not one or the other. It has to be both. We know that where we currently sit today, we are a generation of people who know the least about the Bible since the invention of the printing press. So you, you, might, you might have heard of the, the Gutenberg Press, which was the, the first printing press that was uh, invented to, print, to, to mass print media. And the, the first thing printed on the, on the Gutenberg Press was the Bible. Actually, the, the, the invention of the printing press was driven by Christians who were, had a burning desire to, to put the Bible into hands of people, as many people and as far and as wide as they could, and not just have it accessible to monks uh, sitting in a monastery somewhere. They wanted to put it into the hands of people. What this means is from the invention of that uh, printing press, from when that was invented to uh, distribute the Bible and to put the, hands into, to put the Bible into people's hands, from that day to today, we have got more access than we've ever had to the Bible. But statistically, we know about the same and perhaps less this generation than people did in the 1500s who had no access to the Bible. So it's quite tricky to trace uh, biblical illiteracy rates or even biblical literacy rates because biblical literacy is not only about reading the Bible, it's also about knowing what the Bible says and then living it out. And so we can track how, people, how much people are reading their Bibles by what they believe. It's quite hard to get a statistic of how much you read of the Bible, but it's very easy to get a statistic of what you believe. And so if we track people's beliefs, we can quite easily track actually how much they are reading and living out their Bible. And we know that, again, statistically, what people believe today, Christians, about Jesus, Christianity, salvation, the church, and many other basic beliefs about the Christian faith would indicate that few people are reading their Bibles on their own, and even fewer are living according to what it says. Again, this is not the top. This is the base level of being a Christian. And... and Again, I want to state that what I'm, I'm saying today is this is not to hit people with a stick. I want to give you something to aspire to. My, I've got one goal, for the, one goal for this morning, that you would be inspired to read the Bible, which might sound like a very base level goal, and it is, and for many people it's actually a very high goal. I trust one thing, that you would be inspired to read the Bible.
Bible today. So if we claim to love God and serve God, then surely we need to know a little bit more about the God that we love and serve. If he has spoken to us and he continues to speak to us through the Bible, then surely the more that we can read it, understand it, and apply it, the better we are all. Surely. It's so simple, friends. Today I want to speak about the Bible itself. There's much about the Bible, but I want to speak about the Bible as a book today because the Bible is a lot of things, but it is a book also. So you might have heard of a French philosopher by the name of Voltaire, and um, he, he very much shaped his generation's thinking around much of how society operates. He was a very, very excuse me, influential philosopher um, in his day, and he said this in the early 1700s. By the end of my life, a hundred years after my death, the Bible will be a museum piece. It will be dead. It will be, it will be dead and gone. As it turned out, a hundred years after his death, Voltaire's house became a distribution center for Bibles as the demand grew across the French-speaking world. As uh, the French empire expanded and people were speaking uh, French more and more, his house became a distribution center for French-translated Bibles in the 1700s, if you love irony, which I do. In China, during the 20th century, the Bible was banned by the Communist Party. Copies were confiscated by the gods. In spite of this, as the underground church in China grew, the demand for Bibles continued to grow, and a Chinese printing press recently celebrated 200 million copies of the Bible, which doesn't sound like a lot. But what you need to put into context is that every one of those 200 million copies of the Bible is read and treasured by people under the threat of imprisonment and death. That's 200 million times people have read something under the threat of imprisonment and death and then passed it on to somebody else under the threat of imprisonment and death. Friends, this is a book like no other book. I want to look at three things that the Bible is today, and I want to inspire you to read it, and to read it often, and to not only read it, but to begin to understand it and put it into practice. So the Bible is three things. First of all, it's a best-selling book. The word Bible comes from the word Biblia, which simply means books. It's translated in the plural, books, because the Bible is, before it is one book, it is a collection of writings. There's a bunch of writings in it. And you might, have heard the, um, you might have heard us use the word scripture, which is from a Latin word scriptura, which means writings. So the Bible is a collection of writings. It's a bunch of books and writings. Essentially, the Bible is a, a, a mini library. So it's, it's written by over 40 authors over a thousand year period in different contexts and different times. It's split into two parts, two main parts, the Old Testament, which is written exclusively in Hebrew, and then the New Testament, which is written in mostly Greek with a little bit of Latin thrown in just for fun, because Latin is amazingly fun. I'm joking. There's 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. So the Bible is a collection of writings, it's actually a small library of ancient writings with multiple authors. But the thing that makes this book unique is that if you were to take a sample of another library of 66 books written by 40 authors over a thousand years, and you were to put them together, there would be no coherent story. Yet with the Bible as a collection of writings of 40 authors over a thousand years, tells one story. It is a coherent story that makes sense from start to finish. And it's put together. This is exactly what the Bible is. And so the Bible is not only the best-selling book of all time, but is year on year the most sold book every year. 
every year it is the best sold book. And so when many people who don't read say, I want to start reading, their first, their first go-to is, I'm going to start with what is the best-selling books of this year or last year. Um, I want to start, that, that's where I should start reading. And yet most people start with the number two. What we need to understand is the number one selling book every year, year after year, is the Bible. For a reason. When reality show contestants are asked, what book would you choose to be stranded on a desert island with? The overwhelming answer is the Bible. From the most religious to the least religious person, the answer is the Bible. My point, friends, is that if you have not read the Bible, you are missing out on something. Secondly, the Bible deals with our human story. I said that there's an overarching story in these writings because the Bible isn't just a collection of wise sayings and moral lessons. It's the story of God, and it's the story of humanity. Friends, if you have ever read the Bible, you would have noticed that the Bible is quite complex. There's ugly bits and there's mysterious bits, and it retains all of the rough edges and, and loose endings. And if you, truly, if you are to truly engage with the Bible, it's not a cozy read by the fire with a, a hot chocolate. It's more of a wrestling match. If you are to truly engage with the Bible, it's not always an easy read. It is more like a wrestling match. But also, the Bible has a mysterious harmony about it. How does an ancient library of 66 books, 40 authors, 1,000 years, form one compelling story? And not only does it form a compelling story in mysterious harmony, but 2,000 years later, that coherent story still it makes sense, and it makes sense of our lives today. So it's still as applicable. We, we, we sing about the same God, the same, the same God as Moses, the same God as David. 3,000 years later, the same words that Moses read and was given make sense of my life in Durban North in 2023, 3,000 years later, which is true of all of Scripture. So here's a brief storyline of the Bible. Again, if you've never read the Bible, we can break it up into six major themes. Firstly, it's our origins. Our human desire deals with, deals with our human desire for meaning. It deals with exodus, our human quest for freedom. It deals with exile, our human cry for peace. It deals with the Messiah, our human need for love. It deals with the Spirit, our human thirst for community. And it deals with hope, our human longing for home. How a story opens and closes how it begins and ends frames what the entire story looks like. And the beginning of the Bible takes us to the dawn of time. It doesn't take us to a Christian country. It doesn't start in a religious cult. It's, it deals with the origins of the whole universe, all of nature, humans, evil, and death. And the Bible's origin story answers the same question. Where did I come from and why am I here? Nobody's life can have meaning without answering those two questions. Where did I come from and why am I here? We, we can try and gain all the meaning we want until I can answer those two questions for myself. I can never find true meaning for my life. And so many people struggle with meaning, and yet we sit with a book that covers our deepest meaning. I love that the Bible doesn't start with Christianity as we know it today. It doesn't start with what it means to be Christian. It starts with what it means to be human. I think this is also one of the reasons why it's the most read religious text by people who are not a part of that religion. Because it, it doesn't just make sense of religion. It doesn't just make sense of Christianity. It makes sense of humanity. And it's, it's the same as the church from the last two weeks. See, the church isn't only good for Christians. The church is good for humans. 
The Bible also makes sense of our human quest for freedom. For some people over the centuries, it's been a literal freedom from captivity and slavery. For many more other people, it's the quest for freedom from anxiety and guilt and anger and injustice. It deals with the human quest for freedom from sin and the effects of sin. Every single other book written on this subject can only ever offer a slight change in circumstances. What the Bible offers is a chance to become a new person, not only on the outside, but on the inside, and then to be free from the bondage that sin gets me. And then I get to live from a place of freedom. It doesn't offer only an external freedom. It offers an internal freedom so that I can live externally free, which is good news, friends. I don't know what bondage you're in today or what holds you back today, but I do know that if you were to read and engage with the Bible and plant yourself in the local church, that you would be able to be formed in freedom. As we follow the story of Israel's exile from their homeland into Babylon as slaves, their longing for peace and home echoes our own longing for a world without suffering, injustice, and pain. The story of exile reveals how we can experience peace through the storms of life. Israel's story of exile, how they are able to experience peace in the midst of chaos and exile, echoes our own desires, how we can experience peace through the storms of life. I don't know if you've ever le- lived with, if you've ever lost your peace. I have. It's a terrible place to be in, not living at peace. And because none of us wants to live there as humans, we try and surround ourselves with prosperity and comfort and substances and relationships, and we try and satisfy the cry on our souls for peace. And when that is our solution, we realize that it's actually a poor substitute for the true peace that the Bible offers, because I still go to bed at night, surrounded by as much comfort, prosperity, substances, and relationships as I want. I'll still go to sleep at night, not at peace, striving. There's something in my soul, in the depths of my being, that is not at peace. What the Bible offers is a true peace, if you will read it. If you will plant yourself in a local church, God offers to form peace in you. The Bible also deals with our human need for love. It's not our human desire for love. It's not our human want for love. It's something that we need. As humans, the thing that we need to flourish here on earth is love. It's not an optional extra. All of us need love. And the New Testament starts with the arrival of Jesus, God's love in human form. The story of Jesus' life on earth gives us a glimpse of how beautiful the world is actually able to be. I think that so many people think the Bible is a story about Jesus. But the Bible is a story about humans and how God wants to relate to humans and how we should live in relation to him, a holy God. And then Jesus arrives in the middle of the book as the fulfillment of love in this story. There's 39 books in the Bible in the Old Testament Uh, written before Jesus arrives, and all 39 of those books point forward to a a one who will be sent, a promised one of God who will be able to bridge the divide between a holy God and his broken creation. And so the story of love, of of the humans, of our human need for love, is of God sending his son as the human embodiment of his love. The story of Jesus reveals the invincible power of God's love and how it perfectly meets our human need for love, almost as if it were by design. The Bible also deals with our thirst for community. After Jesus returns to heaven, 
God's presence is released in a whole new way. From a small group of Jewish people, the good news goes viral and new communities spring up all over the known world. Through the Holy Spirit, slaves and masters form one community. Men and women form one community. Jews and non-Jews form one community. Friends, this community called the church is different from every other community on the earth. Because every other community before and since then is formed around a homogenous group of people. It's formed around the same people of the same nationality, people of the same tribe, people of the same language, people of the same thinking, people, of, people that have something in common. Yet the church is formed from every nation. People from Ghana, people from Matuba-Tuba, people from Durban, people from the Eastern Cape, people from the DRC. It's formed around people that are very different from each other. Different languages, tribes, tongues, and nations, all formed together into one community. See, this community is made up of the unlikeliest group of people, people who under normal circumstances wouldn't probably be together. But because the church is different, this picture of community is presented in the Bible, not as a problem-free Lego land where everything is awesome all the time. No, it's presented as a bunch of people who are bound together by the Spirit into one community. The Bible also satisfies our longing for hope. As humans, we are hope-orientated beings. Without hope, without, without a desirable future, we lose the will to live quite quickly. I'm not sure if you've ever tried to live without hope, without the hope that the future will be okay, that something, it will be sorted out one day. There's a way out of the mess that you're in right now. If you do not have that hope, as humans, we are unable to flourish. As we have a need that we, we cannot flourish without love, we also cannot flourish without hope. If we lose hope, the, ability, the, the, the thinking that one day it will be okay, if we don't have that hope, we are unable to flourish, physically unable to flourish today, and we quickly lose our desire to live. You, you, you might still be alive, but you don't have a desire to live. There's a difference between those two things. See, in the midst of chaos, pain, and uncertainty, the Bible speaks hope over our story from start to end. It ends with the picture of humans fully remade and inhabiting a fully remade perfect world. This isn't a picture that's invented or dreamed, dreamt up by science fiction writers. This is what the Bible says. Fully remade humans in a perfect world. The story of hope gives us the resources that we need to live bold and generous lives up until the end. So the Bible makes sense of who we are and of how we experience life in the real world. Of course, things have changed since Bible times, of course. Moses received his instructions and he read from a tablet of stone. Our tablets are quite different today, but they're in our pockets. They're very different. Things have changed, but humans' deepest needs and desires have remained constant. The need for meaning, freedom, peace, love, community, and home haven't changed. This is why the world's bestseller has an enduring shelf life. Why it's the bestseller year after year after year after year, because it has a timeless relevance. It's as relevant to us today as it was to Moses 3,000 years ago when he had it on a tablet of stone. It isn't a dusty old book relevant only to priests and nuns. It's our human story. And if this is the case, if this is our human story, if the things that we need, meaning freedom, peace, love, community, and home, is contained in it, then surely we'd be crazy not to explore it for ourselves. If, that's what, if what I've presented today is what the Bible contains, surely we will be crazy not to explore that for ourselves. 
See, but the Bible is more than that. It is a bestseller and a human story, but it's also an inspired message. This is where the Bible separates itself even further from all other books on earth. Many other books have an inspirational message. They inspire you to something, but not an inspired message. A man called Paul, who writes a good chunk of the New Testament, writes to another young man called Timothy, who is a young man leading a church, and he says this in a second letter that he writes to him. Second Timothy chapter 3, he says in verse 16, that all scripture, all of these writings, are inspired by God. And one of the other translations literally says, God breathed, God breathes them. And something mysterious happens when people engage with the Bible. People of all ages, people of all languages, people of all IQ levels, people of all cultures have discovered within the Bible a living message, God's inspired words for me and for you. People that read and engage with the Bible have testimony after testimony of God speaking to them directly through the Bible. When I was a young man, a younger man, because I still am young, when I was a younger man, I was wanting to get married, and I said, God, would you speak to me? Is this the right girl? Is this the right time? Like, speak to me. How, you know, and how does God speak? He doesn't speak, I don't know, God speaks a number of ways, but the number one way that he speaks is through the Bible. And so God gave me a scripture, a passage of scripture that had been written 2,000 odd years ago to a church, to a group of people that I've never met 2,000 years ago who worshiped the same God that I worshiped. And he took those words written to them 2,000 years ago and he inspired it. He breathed life into it directly for me. Friends, there's nothing like the clarity that God's bringing. If it's for me, just tell them I'm busy preaching. <laughs> That's okay. And he, and he took those words written 2,000 years ago and he breathed life into it for me today. There's nothing like the clarity that God's word brings when it's spoken directly into your situation, into your circumstance, when it is God's word to you. God's word is God's word for us, but when it is God's word to you, there's nothing like the clarity that comes with that. Remember, I started off by saying that it's God's communication that's life-giving. So as Nick said, when, when we speak about our finances, one of our sayings is that tithers have testimonies. Tithers have testimonies. The same is true regarding the Bible. Those who read the Bible have testimonies of God speaking to them. So many people sit there hoping that God will speak to them through Netflix, through TikTok. Maybe he'll speak to me through a preacher. Maybe he'll speak to me through a worship song or through a billboard as I'm driving on the road. Maybe he will. He might. But what I do know for sure is that people who read the Bible have testimonies of God speaking to them. They say, if you want to hear God, read the Bible. And if you want to hear God speak audibly to you, then read the Bible out loud. It's as simple as that. Friends, the church is glorious. The church is imperfect and messy, but beautiful. And there's no other organization on the earth like her. It is through her that the world is changed. The Bible, on the other hand, is not imperfect. It's a book that is life-giving. It's a sword that cuts to the heart and divides the spirit from the flesh. But like a sword, it can be used to do harm. And I'm, I'm well aware of that. It can be used to injure innocent people. And I'm not here this morning to, to gloss over that fact and say that it doesn't happen. If, we, we all know of instances where it has happened. And I would say that in response to that, the, 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 the response to that is not uh, where it's been misused. The response is not to stop using it. The answer is to use it correctly. 
In fact, I'll go even further and say the fact that the Bible is able to be used to do so much harm to people is indicative of its power. If it didn't carry power, it wouldn't be able to use, be used to harm people. The fact that it is, and it does, shows that it has power. If it has the power to do that, imagine the power that it has to set people free. Imagine the power that it has to give your life meaning and purpose, to lead to what it means to be a human fully alive and flourishing here on earth. Imagine. Does God speak outside of the Bible? Absolutely. But he never speaks in contradiction to the Bible. If what you believe God is saying to you goes against Scripture and it goes against the church, then I can tell you with absolute confidence today, friends, that it's not God speaking to you. If you are looking for Jesus, if you are desperate for Jesus, you will find him in his church and you will find him in his word. He alone saves us and then he uses the church and his word in the Bible to form us. Again, I just want to remind you that next week we're going to be going into some practical things. How to read the Bible if you have never done it before. How can you start? If you are doing it well, how can you do it better? If you have been reading it and you've hit a stumbling stone, text that to us. Get hold of us, please. We, we, we want to help you uh, stumble less over that stone and, and, and give as much, as, uh, as much help as we can to it. So we, we, Next week we want to get really practical. Get hold of us. Text us questions, thoughts, comments. Get hold of us text them to us so that we can look at some of them next week. But please send them to us by Wednesday so we've got a little bit of time to prepare. Can you stand with me, please, friends?